He wants you to see this Jew and this Gentile grasping hands, putting their arms around each other with a great big hug, with a great big smile. They then walk into the presence of God together. That's what Paul wants you to see. He has broken down this wall of hostility. How did he break it down? By uh, the cross in which he abolished the law of commandments and ordinances. So did Jesus abolish the law on the cross? No, he abolished the law of commandments and ordinances. By that, he means that, that on the cross, Jesus abolished the ceremonial law, the law of commandments and ordinances. Jesus did not abolish the moral law of God, the, the, the Ten Commandments, the, how God tells us to live, what's right and what's wrong. Jesus doesn't, doesn't abolish that. Jesus fulfills it. He lives it for us. What he abolished was the ceremonial law, and the ceremonial law was the, the very dividing wall. That's what Paul said. He's, he's abolished this dividing wall by abolishing the ceremonial law, which was the basis of their hatred towards you thereby killing the hostility. Verse 17, And He came and preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who were near. So you remember that trip that Jesus made to Ephesus in Acts? Remember that? When Jesus goes to Ephesus and preaches the gospel to them? No, you don't remember that because Jesus never went to Ephesus. So how does Paul say that he, Jesus has preached to you who were far? How does, how does Paul say that? Because Jesus has preached to them by means of His Spirit that has come the Spirit of Christ has come and preached the gospel by way of Apollos, by way of Aquila and Priscilla, by way of Paul, by way of Timothy, by way of the Apostle John. All of them have come to Ephesus. Remember when we talked about that at the beginning. All these leaders of the church that have been to Ephesus and the gospel has been preached to them. Now what's the common thread between all those people? They're all Jews. So here's what Paul's saying. The Spirit of Christ has come and preached to you by means of the people who hate you. God has sent people from the group of people who hate you. And God has sent them to preach Christ to you. Does this sound like, oh, I don't know, Jonah? Remember the story of Jonah? Who hated the Ninevites? Yet God said, you are the one that I want to go to them. I want you who has such hatred and such animosity in your heart, I want you to go and preach Christ to them. Not that Apollos and Aquila and Priscilla and Paul hated the Ephesians. They didn't. They were converted. But it is to say that God in His wisdom sends to them the Spirit of Christ by way of those who were their enemies. The Spirit of Christ has come and preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who are near. Paul clearly has in mind here some of the passages from Isaiah. How beautiful, are the mount, how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of Him who brings good news, who publishes peace. Or Isaiah 57, verse 19, peace, peace to the far and to the near. So clearly, clearly Paul is, is thinking here about prophecies from Isaiah. So, he, so here he says the, that... Verse 19, by abolishing the law of commandments and ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. So right here, Jesus creates one new man. And here's where some people get confused because Paul is not talking about a man. 
when he says that, that Jesus created one new man, he means one new mankind, a new humanity. Jesus created on the cross a new humanity, a new people. That's what Jesus is doing. On the, by the way, that's what, that's what the piercing of the side was all about. You remember the piercing of the side in John's Gospel where they come and they stab Jesus in the side and out from His side comes water and blood. And so Jesus right there is symbolically, He's metaphorically birthing the church. He's birthing the church because He'd already told Nicodemus in John 3 that unless one is born of water and blood, you cannot see God. So out of His side comes water and blood. What else came out of a side? Remember the story of Adam? The story of Adam went out of Adam's side. Actually, the word there is not rib. I don't know where we got rib from. The, the word there is side. Out of Adam's side comes the woman. In the same way that the woman came out of Adam's side on the cross, the church comes out of Jesus. By the spilling of the water and the blood, none can see God without being born of the water and the blood. On the cross, Jesus is metaphorically giving birth to His people. And so Paul says, from the one man came a new man, a new humanity. This is the church. Do you see how loftily Paul is speaking of God's people, the church? There's nowhere in Scripture that speaks quite so profoundly and quite so loftily about the church. So on the cross, the, the church is being born. Again, verse 17, And He came and preached peace to you who are far off, peace to those who were near. 18, For through Him we both have access in one Spirit to the Father. So here's the picture that Paul wants you to see. He wants you to see this Jew and this Gentile grasping hands, putting their arms around each other with a great big hug, with a great big smile. They then walk into the presence of God together. That's what Paul wants you to see. This is the blessing in Christ that Paul has been building up to. This glorious reality that here are these two enemies who hate each other. And Paul wants you to see Christ has come by way of the enemy and He's preached peace to you by way of the enemy using the enemy's mouth so that from the one man now two join hands, put their arms around each other and walk into the presence of God together because a new man, a new humanity has been created on the cross. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. You are now members of the household of God. So here's a question, and it just might be another trick question. Can a non-Israelite be saved? What do you think? Yes and no. If we know our Bibles, we say all who are saved are true Israel. Isn't that what Paul says in Galatians chapter 3? Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness... Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. Jesus says to the woman at the well, salvation comes from the Jews. The Pharisees come to Jesus and they say, we're, we're sons of Abraham. Jesus says, you're not sons of Abraham. If you were sons of Abraham, you'd believe me. But you're not sons of Abraham. Paul says, true Israel it's what you've been grafted into. So here's what he's saying. This glorious truth is you have now been made part 
of the citizenship of God, the household of God, which from the beginning was those who were of Abraham. The true sons of Abraham aren't those who came from his loins. The true sons of Abraham are those who believed like he believed in Genesis 15. And so the glorious truth he wants them to see is those who hated you so much, who thought that they had what you didn't have, and that was the basis of their hatred towards you. Paul says, they're not of that household. You are the one who are of that household now. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. Or in other words, built upon the teaching of the apostles and the prophets. Christ himself is the cornerstone. We could spend a lot of time there talking about the cornerstone. Verse 21, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you see, in him, in him, in whom, in him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. You are being built together. This reminds us of the words of Peter. You're being built together into a spiritual house. You're being built together into the household of God. You are being built together into a dwelling place for God. Revelation chapter 21, when the new heavens and the new earth come down, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with him. Matthew 1 and verse 23, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. And the parenthetical phrase by Matthew is, which means God with us. You are being built into the dwelling place of God himself. This is what John 14 is all about. I go to prepare a place for you. If I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there, there you may be also. John 14 is not about mansions in the sky. As much as I love that song, we don't have mansions in the sky. You don't have a mansion in the sky. The dwelling place that Jesus is preparing for us is his church. Jesus is preparing his church as the dwelling place of God. And so this is the glorious truth that Paul has really been building up to and reaching this point. Chapter three is all is going to be about the mystery of the church the glorious mystery of this thing called new humanity, the new people of God, the people of God that were chosen from the foundation of the world, who are the true sons of Abraham, who are the true citizens of heaven, and how this has broken down every hatred and every hostility. Jesus came when he did on purpose. He came when he did to a people who were engrossed in some of the deepest, ugliest hatred that society has ever known. Because he wants to demonstrate how his gospel overcomes every hatred, every prejudice, every animosity. I'm reading a book now that's a very challenging book to read. It's a book about a man named Henry Garricky. Henry Garricky was an army chaplain in World War II. He was 50 in 1943. And the army up until 1943 had an age limit of 45 for chaplains. So he was a pastor and he wanted to go and be a chaplain in World War II, but he was past the age limit. He had two sons already in the war. But in 1943, the army lifted the age limit. And so Henry Garricky goes to Europe as an army chaplain 
to spend two years in Europe serving the cause there, so to speak, as an army chaplain in Europe. After serving his two years, the war comes to an end in 1945. And at the end of the war, the army asked Henry Gericke to stay to fulfill another mission in Europe. And that mission was to be the chaplain at a place called Nuremberg to 22 high-profile Nazi war criminals. They wanted him to be the chaplain. He spoke fluent German. So they wanted him to serve as the chaplain to these 22 of the highest profile Nazi war criminals. Why why were they assigned a chaplain? Because that's the right thing to do. So Gericke, who speaks German, was assigned to these 22. and, And these weren't just concentration camp guards. These were all names that we know, that we've heard through in our history books. These were the ones who among this, these 22 people, millions of people died directly because of them. And they didn't just die. They were starved to death. They were frozen to death. They were beaten to death. They were worked to death. And all of it was not on the other side of the world. All of it was right where they lived, right outside their door. They saw it. They were in charge of it. They orchestrated it. They were the engineers behind it. They were the ones carrying it out. So we all are familiar with the Nuremberg trials. So Gericke was assigned as the chaplain to these 22 high-profile Nazi war criminals. And so the book wrestles with And this is why the book can be so difficult. It wrestles with questions like, how do you genuinely present the gospel that forgives and saves to people whom you really wish they burn in hell? How do you do that? Makes you feel like Jonah, right? How do you present this gospel that brings forgiveness to the worst of sinners to people who are monsters. So Gericke begins his duties and after about a year, so now he's been gone from his family for three years now. His boys are both back home. After about a year, these 22 high-profile prisoners get together and they've heard a rumor. And the rumor is that Gericke's wife back home has filed a petition for him to be relieved of duty so he can come back home because their family hasn't been together now for over four years. So she files a petition with the army asking him to be relieved of the remainder of his duty so he can come back home. They hear rumor of this. And these men write a letter to his wife. And his letter, their, their letter is in your notes. Let's read this together. Dear Mrs. Gericke, your husband, Pastor Gericke, has been taking religious care of the undersigned defendants during the Nuremberg trial. He has been doing so for more than half a year. We now have heard, dear Mrs. Gericke, that you wish to see him back home after his absence of several years. Because we also have wives and children, we understand this wish of yours very well. Nevertheless, we are asking you to put off this wish, to gather your family around you at home for a little while, Please consider that we cannot miss your husband now. During the past months, he has shown us uncompromising friendliness, 
of such a kind that he has become indispensable for us. Our dear chaplain Garricky is necessary for us not only as a minister, but also as the thoroughly good man that he is. Surely, we need not describe him as such to his own wife. We simply have come to love him. Let me read that sentence again. We simply have come to love him. It is impossible for any other man other than him to break through the walls that have been built up around us. You see the theme of Ephesians 2 there? In a spiritual sense, even stronger than in a material one. Please leave him with us. Certainly you will bring this sacrifice and we will be indebted to you. We send our best wishes to you and your family. God be with you. And it was signed by all 22 prisoners. How does that happen? Here's a man who hasn't seen his family for three years. Two of those years, both of his sons were in combat. All because of these men. He has been in Europe now three years. He has another to go. All because of these men. He has endured some of the worst emotional and mental anguish because as chaplain, he has to now know things. And this is another reason the book is so difficult. He has to hear things and know things from these monsters. And yet he is able to minister the gospel to them so well that they love him. And they send a letter, all of them, to his wife, pleading, please don't take him from us. There is good reason to believe that four of those men made a trustable repentance and confession in Christ. And so if you are in Christ this morning, you have good reason to believe that you will see at least four high-profile Nazi war criminals in heaven because of Henry Garricky. How does the gospel do that? What, what kind of gospel can do that? Okay, yes, somebody hurts your feelings and the gospel helps you get over that and love them again and forgive them again. That's wonderful. We're talking about monsters who murdered millions of people in horrific ways. And the gospel can overcome that. This is the church. This is the church that Paul is talking about. All of you, if you have one eye and half a brain, all of you can see that our world is deeply broken. And you can all see how much hatred and animosity are in this world, and you can all see how nobody's solution is ever going to work. The only solution, the only answer... Is Christ. He is the only one that breaks down the hostility. He's the only one that brings unity out of enemies. And so if you still think of church as an obligation, if you still think of church as, as part of your life that you go to one day a week or something, you haven't understood anything that Paul said. 
You have totally missed the point of everything that Paul has said, and you have missed the point of what he has said in this passage. The church of Jesus Christ is supernatural because it is a group of supernatural people who have been made into a new humanity who are indwelt by a spirit that can create with them a love like that. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Truth That Transforms with pastor and Bible teacher Jason Wilkerson. Truth That Transforms is the daily teaching broadcast of Disciples Fellowship Church. We invite you to visit our website where you will find more resources to help in your journey of discipleship. You can find us at www.disciplesfellowshipnc.com or connect with our Facebook page at Facebook slash Disciples Fellowship NC. Truth That Transforms exists to glorify Jesus Christ through the teaching of His sanctifying and disciple-making Word.